the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Go piss free. The following program is sponsored by Ruth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth from Philip DeCourcy. God wants to supply what you need in your difficulty, in your trial, whatever that might be. It's grace that calls us to Christ. It's grace that calls us to change. It's grace that calls us to persevere. And it's grace that will give us the strength to pull it all off. Grace is like a jewel. Hold it up and you'll see all kinds of sides to it. When we hear the word grace, we're likely to think of just one thing, pardon from sin. But today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy is presenting the many facets of biblical grace. Like a diamond, grace has several sides to explore, and each one reflects God's goodness and glory. He's explaining that once you're saved, you'll receive still more grace to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now let's get to the message that reveals how we are made strong in God's grace. Here's Philip. It's assumed in the South that every preacher enjoys fried chicken. And it's generally true, especially Baptist preachers. Well, I was reading about this poor fellow who was in the South doing a revival, but he wasn't really hot on fried chicken. And yet that week during the revival, wherever he went, he was fed fried chicken. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. And Friday night, the last night of the revival, he was being treated to some hospitality by a kind family in the church. He sat down at the dinner table, and there you had it. You know, mashed potatoes, green beans, and you got it, fried chicken. And he was asked to give thanks, so he prayed this prayer. Lord, I've had it hot and I've had it cold. I've had it young and I've had it old. I've had it tender and I've had it tough. But thank you, Lord, tonight I've had enough. (laughs) I like that. But on a more serious note, I think we'll all come to a place in life, or we all will come to a place in life at one time or another where we've had enough. We kind of run out of steam. We're low on resolve. We're exasperated and exhausted. We're ready to surrender. Whether it's in raising a family, the pursuit of a career, the building of a lasting marriage, the keeping of friends, the fighting of an illness, the conquering of a disability, refusing temptation, church life, our walk with God. We can become exasperated and exhausted to the point of surrender. There are times when we're so worn out, we want to walk out. We've had enough. Now, speaking of those seasons in life, and they do come, it's interesting in the book of Proverbs, chapter 24 and verse 10, the Bible says this, 
If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. But we have to acknowledge at times our strength is small. We get run down. Life drains us to the bottom of our resolve. But here's the good news. We can be made strong. Our small strength can be swallowed up in His great strength. And that's the good news. We can be strong through faith in our God. Because in Joshua 1 verse 9, what does God say to Joshua? Be strong and courageous, for I will be with you, and I won't fail you, and I won't leave you. What about Ephesians 6 verse 10? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. I like this one, 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, where Paul says to young Timothy, who was given to timidity and anxiety. He says, Timothy, be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to pivot off that last verse because the Bible does promise strengthening grace. Timothy, be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the fact that there is saving grace, Ephesians 2. But now we're going to look at the fact that there is strengthening grace, Hebrews 4. There's grace that brings us to faith, and there's grace that supplies the strength to continue in the faith. You see, grace is divine energy. Grace is God's favorable work in us, strengthening and sustaining us for all that He has for us. What about 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10? Paul says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace which was with me. Grace is God's energy at work in us. You get a similar thought over in 1 Peter 5, verse 10. If you want to write it down, I'll read it for you. Here's what we read. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, listen, strengthen, and settle you. Timothy, stand in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that whatever he is, whatever he has accomplished, it's the grace of God working in him and with him. The God of all grace can strengthen us. There's not only saving grace, there is strengthening grace. I'm going to look at that idea in Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Now, before I get there, I just want to remind you, we're in a series called Total Grace. I want to remind you that grace is the manner in which God handles us throughout all of the life and beyond into eternity. It's too often we have a view of grace that's one-dimensional. We kind of stay at the baseline of our understanding of grace. It's grace that forgives us. It's grace that justifies us. It's grace that brings us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a wonderful thing. That's absolutely true. But we've got to get off that baseline. Grace is much more than that. It's not one-dimensional. It's a many-splendored thing. It's like a jewel. It's like a gem. Hold it up and you'll see all kinds of sides to it. If you remember, I outlined where we're going in this series. There's saving grace, Ephesians 2. There's strengthening grace, Hebrews 4. There's serving grace, Romans 12. Sacrificing grace, 2 Corinthians 8. 
Suffering grace, 2 Corinthians 12. Singing grace, Colossians 3. Speaking grace, Colossians 4. Schooling grace, Titus 2. We have a long way to go. There's eight sides to this gem we call grace. God wants to supply what you need in your difficulty, in your trial, whatever that might be. It's grace that calls us to Christ. It's grace that calls us to change. It's grace that calls us to persevere. And it's grace that will give us the strength to pull it all off. Didn't John Newton talk about saving grace and strengthening grace? Didn't he talk about how he once was lost, but now he's found? And then he talks about the grace that will bring him home after many dangers, toils, and snares. There's grace that brings us to Christ, and there's grace that brings us home to Christ, and there's grace for everything in between those two points. I like what Tony Evans says, learning about God's grace is like opening one of those huge cellophane-wrapped gift baskets at Christmas. Every time you think you find all the goodies in the basket, you reach in a little deeper and find something else good just waiting to be discovered and enjoyed. Good analogy. And that's what the doctrine of God's grace is like. You rummage through there. Oh, there's grace that brings us to salvation. And then you rummage a little bit more. There's grace that will strengthen us for the times in life where we have trouble and trials. And there's grace that allows us to sing at midnight like Paul in the prison in Philippi. There's all kinds of grace if you keep rummaging. So let's look at strengthening grace. Now before we look at these verses in particular, let's put them in their context. Let me go wide first. Let's look at the wider context. This is a book written to Jews who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, Hebrew Christians. And by now, it seems, according to Hebrews 10, the heat is being turned up. They're facing persecution. They haven't yet resisted the blood, but the heat's being turned up. Some of them have been disinherited and disinvested. It's tough times for these Hebrew Christians. Some of them are also struggling with the simplicity of Christianity. There's no temple. There's no Levitical priesthood. There's no sacrificial blood. There's no temple choirs. There's no robes. There's no bells. There's no smells. Christianity seems so simple, unsophisticated, if we might put it like that. And they're beginning to ask questions. And some are being tempted to go back to Judaism. And the writer of this epistle, this letter, writes to exhort them not to do that. Why would you go back given the fact that Jesus is the great high priest? Speaking about priests, and Jesus was God tabernacling among us, talking about temples. And Jesus offered a sacrifice for sin that was full and forever, talking about the blood of goats. Why would you go back to the shadow when you have the substance? Why would you go back to the old covenant when you have the new covenant? Jesus is better than Aaron, better than Joshua, better than Moses. Don't do that. In fact, we'll see in this passage that he'll make an argument, don't go back, don't give in to that temptation because Christ, the great high priest, was tempted. And one of his temptations was to renege on God's will. When he fought that idea in the Garden of Gethsemane, the bitter cup, the cross, the suffering. So that's the wider context. You're not alone in your struggle. Jesus struggled and was tempted, but 
remain faithful and therefore you need to hold fast to your confession of faith. And then there's the immediate context back up into verse 13. Having spoken about God's word and how it exposes our thoughts and the intents of our heart, we are reminded that the God who wrote that word that exposes us will someday expose us also. Because according to verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The preceding thought speaks of the exposure we feel when we understand the holiness of God. When the light of God's glaring righteous and holy character is shone on our lives, we feel naked, exposed, undone. Isn't that how Isaiah felt in chapter 6 of his prophecy? I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You got me. I can't hide that fact. Well, if that's true, and it is true, isn't it interesting you go from verse 13 to verses 14, 15, and 16, where we're told to not hide our sin, but to confess our sin and go to the throne of grace and find mercy for it. See, when our sin is exposed, we go scurrying away from God at times, riddled with guilt and fear and the thought of his condemnation. The opposite is being encouraged here. Yes, your sin is apparent. You are exposed. God sees you for what you are. But you can come to his son and find forgiveness. So that's the wider and immediate context. I like what Luther, the Protestant reformer, said of that idea of running to God. After terrifying us, the Hebrew writer comforts us. After pouring wine into the wound, he pours oil. So let's look at our text. Three things, the exhortation, the encouragement, and the expectation. Let's jump right in. The exhortation. What is the exhortation? It's let us hold fast our confession, verse 14. That's the exhortation. The word exhortation means to urge, to appeal, to come alongside someone and to cheerlead them in a certain direction. If you go to Hebrews 13 and verse 22, the writer tells us this whole letter is really a word of exhortation. That's why throughout Hebrews, you'll hear this little phrase, therefore let us go on to perfection. Let us come to the throne of grace. Let us hold fast our confession of faith. Throughout this letter, the writer is giving these folks a proverbial kick in the seat of their spiritual pants. He wants them to persevere to the end. He wants them to endure in the race. He wants them not to turn back to perdition. In some ways, this whole letter is some spiritual smelling salts to revive them in their resolve to follow Jesus. Because after all, Jesus is superior to Moses, superior to the angels, superior to Aaron. Let me look at this little phrase for a moment with you. Let us hold fast our confession, verse 14. That's what they're exhorted to do. Now, the word hold fast is an interesting Greek word. It's used in the Gospels to speak of people that clung to Jesus, like the woman who clung to him after his resurrection. That's our word. She grabbed him by the ankles almost. That's our word. She clung to him. See him in Acts 3 when there were those who clung to the apostle Peter and John. They were looking for something. That's our word. Now, what is physically true has a 
metaphorical reality in the spiritual realm, just as we cling to people, it also speaks of a commitment or a clinging to Christ and His gospel. And that's how it's used throughout the book of Hebrews. They're to remain committed to Christ. They're to hold fast. They're to cling to the Savior. In fact, I think I've told you this story before. When June and I were flying once from LAX to Cleveland, we were towards the back of the aircraft. I was in the aisle seat. Jim was in the middle. And this dear lady was over against the window. And as the plane started up and moved towards the runway for takeoff, you could tell this woman was a nervous flyer. And eventually June said, are you okay? And she says, no, I'm, I'm not doing well. I, I hate flying. I wish I didn't have to fly. And she was literally trembling. And June took her by the hand and said, you know, you're going to be okay. And then not knowing where the lady is from or who she was, she nevertheless said, well, can I pray for you? And the lady said, I'd love that. And so June prayed for her. It seemed to calm her down a little bit. But this stage, the lady's grabbing her by the arm. We take off. Within a minute or two, I look over and the woman's fast asleep on June's shoulder. It's true, Bill. And still clinging onto her arm. Now, June let that go for about 60 minutes. I was almost going to say she's a better woman than me, but I'm not a woman, so she's a better person than me in that I would have found some way to go, you know, bump her or... I'm sorry, that's the way it rolls. But she suffered that thing for 60 minutes. And literally later told me there was marks on her arm. The lady had kind of dug in out of fear. That's our word. She was holding fast, clinging. That's the word here. We're to cling, to hold fast to our confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. This isn't just remaining committed to Jesus. This involves holding on to your public confession. Notice, hold fast to your confession of faith. There's nothing private about our faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't gone public about your love for Jesus, you're not in a good place because if you don't confess him before man, he won't confess you before the Father. As one writer, Raymond Brown, says, this is not merely an appeal to endurance, but an exhortation to fearless witness. Don't be robbed of your faith. Advertise it. Hold it fast and hold it forth. That's the idea. Hold it fast and hold it forth. Now, for them, that was becoming a challenge. We read in Hebrews 10 that they were disinherited. I'm going to guess businessmen lost business. I'm going to guess they lost friends, family. That's on the Jewish side of things. And then they, like every other Christian, they were up against the Roman authorities and their dislike for Christians. And no doubt it would have been easy to just live in the shadows, to be quiet, to, you know, confess a private faith, but they must go public with it. They must not be robbed of it. They must advertise it. They must hold it fast and they must hold it forth. Same with us. Same with us. There's three ways in which you ought to go public with your faith. In words, in works, and in water. In words, where you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, verses 9 to 10. Your workmates have heard you talk about Him. Your family has heard you talk about Him. Your friends know that you are a bona fide, born-again Christian. You don't hide that fact. You're not a secret disciple. So in words, in works, faith expresses itself in works. 
And according to Matthew 5, verse 16, we're told that we're the light of the world and we're to do good works. And as men see our good works, they will glorify our Father in heaven. So it's good to serve the Lord here and serve Him on this campus, but that's works that men see. That's Monday through Saturday. That's another way to go public. That's another way to hold fast and hold forth your confession of faith. And then in water. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, where we read that Jesus said, hey, when you preach the gospel and people are made disciples through trusting me, you need to teach them everything I've commanded and you need to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I dare you to read your New Testament and find me an unbaptized believer. You read the book of Acts. As soon as we read and they believed, you'll read and they were believed and baptized. If you're not baptized, you're disobedient. And you need to be baptized as soon as possible. Go public in words. Go public in works. Go public in water. Kneel your colors to the mass. Our enemies are aggressive. They're vocal. The enemies of the gospel are legioned. We need a church that's bold, that holds fast and holds forth. I like the story I told the guys a week or two ago about John Hancock, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He was one of the signatories to that document. In fact, his was one of the larger signatures. That's why, by the way, when you're asked to give your signature, sometimes somebody will say what? Put your John Hancock there. That's where that phrase comes from. And the reason his signature was bigger and bolder than the others because he did it deliberately. He exaggerated his signature. And when he was asked why he did it, he said, because I want King George to have no problem recognizing me. It's pretty bold, you know? He didn't write his signature as a small print on the declaration. No, it's time for America to be free, to become independent. I'm on board. I am so much on board. I want to make sure that King George knows that John Hancock has made a decision. And he's bold in declaring it. I don't remember the statistics, but you'll know almost every one of the men that signed that declaration died in poverty. Cost them. That's what's being asked here of them. And because we're reading it and it applies to us, it's being asked of us. It should never be said of the believer that we will go quietly out into the night. That's Philip DeCourcy here on Know the Truth. Hear more from this Total Grace series when you visit ktt.org. You'll find all of Philip's messages archived there listed by series title. As Philip said today, God wants to supply what you need by His grace. It's grace that calls us to Christ, grace that calls us to change, and grace that gives us the strength to persevere. At Know the Truth, we're delivering messages like today's in order to give you the biblical confidence to lean on God's grace for your every need. It's why we began this Bible teaching ministry, taking the teaching of Philip DeCourcy outside the church walls where more men and women can hear and respond to God's grace and truth. Help us continue this ministry when you make a generous donation online at ktt.org or by phone at 888-644-8811. And when you give today, we'll send you a resource titled Grace-Focused Optimism by C.L. Chase, founder of Grace-Focused Optimism Ministries. Philip highly recommends this book to help you live a life infused with the transforming power of God's grace. 
It's not about positive thinking. It's about our powerful, merciful, and good God who gives us every reason to see our lives not just half full, but overflowing with His favor and grace. Request your copy of Grace Focused Optimism when you make a generous donation to Know the Truth. Call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. On our website, you'll also notice we're offering a CD message from Philip called A New Beginning. It's free to anyone who's never reached out to us before. Learn the truth about God's saving grace when you ask for this CD message. Call 888-644-8811. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. So glad you joined us today. There's more bold Bible teaching coming up next week when Philip continues to look at the various facets of God's amazing total grace. That's Monday on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Michael Medved from michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. During the holiday season, an astonishing legacy inspired Seattle. A single childless social worker named Alan Naiman died of cancer at 63. He had become known to his friends for unabashed thriftiness that veered into the comical, holding together his battered shoes with duct tape. But when he died, he left $11 million to children's charities that helped the poor, disabled, and abandoned. He scrimped, saved, and invested while working three jobs so he could help kids he never met. Because he left everything to charity, government imposed no death tax on his wealth. But had he directed it to relatives or even designated strangers, the state of Washington would have imposed its crushing estate tax. This case demonstrates why government should keep hands off honestly earned previously taxed life savings while honoring wishes of the deceased on their designated distribution. I'm Michael Medved. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.